0: How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. A few moments of silent prayer to take advantage of the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it illuminates everything in our thinking and it teaches us the way things are in reality, how you created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, that you have done everything for our lives and for our salvation. You have provided everything. We do nothing. Your grace is more than sufficient. Father, we pray that uh, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we could understand the things that we study tonight as we reflect upon all that you have provided for our spiritual life and can be motivated by it to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and we continue our study on the spiritual life. Now, as we start Romans 6, Paul begins with a question. It's a rhetorical question designed to bring up a an important issue that was faced at that time, and I think it's masterful the way he did it, because it it combines both the literal question, which would come from the uh, antinomians who might want to say that, okay, we have grace, Christ died for our sins, He covered everything, He paid the penalty, so why can't I just go out and continue to sin? And then the uh, objection from the legalistic crowd who would say, Okay, if you I don't know about this grace, it sounds good, but but what about people? Isn't that going to give them a license to just go sin? And it's amazing how many people react to grace that way, that no, no, that can't be right, because if that were right, if God did everything, if everything was provided for us, and uh, we don't have to work, we don't have to do anything, then I can just go sin with impunity. And Paul gives that a resounding no, so he starts with a question, follows it with uh, an answer... Uh, which is a strong negation. And then he brings up another question in verse 3, which focuses our attention on the doctrinal issue at stake, which is baptism into Christ, what that means. And then he spends the next uh, seven verses unpacking what the baptism into Christ's death is all about. Now, this basically brings up the whole issue of positional truth. And I know I've used that to term more than once recently, and so we need to identify and define what these terms mean. Positional truth is really made up of two separate doctrines. The first is retroactive positional truth, and the second is current positional truth. So let's define retroactive positional truth first. This is when the believer is identified with Christ's spiritual death. This is a historical happening. The moment we trusted Christ as our Savior, at that instant, a historical reality takes place. We are identified with Christ and identified with everything that takes place on the cross because of our position in Christ. We're identified with His death, His spiritual death, His physical death and burial and resurrection. That physical death and burial signifies the judgment on sin so that the rulership of Satan and the sovereignty of the sin nature are broken. Up to that point, we are all under the tyranny of the sin nature. Every single human being, no matter who they are, no matter how nice they are, no matter how wonderful they are, or kind, or moral, even your mother, even your daughter, are sinners. They can't do anything prior to salvation except operate on the power of the sin nature. So in retroactive positional truth, at the moment in time today that we trust Christ as our Savior, we are identified with the event 2,000 years ago in church history, and his death becomes our death. Now, the second aspect of positional truth is current positional truth. This is identification with Christ in his ascension. Retroactive goes to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, a historical event in the past. And now he is currently seated with the Father at the right hand of God the Father. So, it is identification with Christ as he is now seated at the right hand of the Father in His resurrection, ascension, and session, and it focuses on the provision for the believer of a new spiritual life with its attendant potential blessings. Now, these are potential only in the sense that they have been provided for us. They are ours. They have been determined to be ours from eternity past. It has nothing to do with what we do or don't do. We do not receive blessing because we are obedient. We receive blessings. These blessings are then handed out on the basis of our maturity. And as we reach maturity growth, maturity potential, God then bestows those blessings or passes them out because if He gives them too soon, they could ruin us. So blessings are not given as rewards. They are ours already, but they are not activated unless we reach a position where we are ready to handle those particular blessings. Well, identification with Christ in His physical death and burial connotes the breaking of the power of the sin nature. That act alone doesn't provide us with anything new. It just breaks the power. It is current positional truth that provides us with something new, and that is what Paul refers to down here as newness of life. So, it is retroactive positional truth that cancels the power of the sin nature, and it is current positional truth that provides us with the newness of life. Now, let's review and look at the positional, the positional truth in terms of the chart that we have. There are eternal realities and temporal realities, and the left circle represents those eternal realities we have in Christ. The sphere represents the concept in the Greek, the N plus the dative indicates a sphere. This is in Christ. This incorporates all that He is and all that He has done are ours. And at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. That means we are identified with Him legally and judicially so that everything that happens on the cross in effect happened to us at that point. So that we we died with Him, we were buried with Him, and we rose to new life. The second sphere represents the sphere of the Christian life, whether we are filled with the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, or whether we are out of fellowship, in carnality, under the sin nature. Now, prior to salvation, we have no choice but to be under the sin nature. But after salvation, it is exclusively a matter of our own volition. The issue in the past chapters has been the imputation of Christ, the imputation of of, uh, perfect righteousness. We see that God is plus R, He's perfect righteousness and absolute justice, and we are minus R. The only way God could solve the problem is through a substitute. So Jesus Christ had to serve as that substitute, and at the cross all of our unrighteousness, all of our sins are poured out upon Him. They are imputed to Him, credited to Him in a judicial imputation, and then His righteousness is judicially imputed to us, So that when God looks at us, it is on the basis of that perfect righteousness and not on the basis of whatever we do, good or bad, under the filling of the Spirit or not. And so He blesses us totally and exclusively on the basis of our possession of the righteousness of Christ. We ended last time looking at three stages of salvation. I want to introduce this. I'm going to modify it later on with some variations to help you understand Some of the things that do go on uh, around us, so that you can have a little bit of a frame of reference. Phase one is at the cross. It takes place in an instant in time. It is not a process. This is the problem of Roman Catholic theology. Justification in Roman Catholic theology is a process. It takes place over time, just as sanctification does. So they happen together. And frankly, in Roman Catholic theology, you never know when you have enough. You are meriting the merit of Christ, and every time you participate in a sacrament, one of the seven sacraments, you receive a little more grace. How much grace do you need to be saved? Nobody knows. So, that's the problem. They don't understand phase one is a point in time. It is a process. Phase two is the spiritual life, which is called sanctification, and it is our growth from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, and then phase 3 is glorification when we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord. Phase 1 is called positional sanctification, phase 2 progressive sanctification and phase 3 ultimate sanctification. Pay attention to those terms. I'm going to introduce a variant heresy. It's called entire sanctification later on. Don't get that don't get confused. That's a, that's a technical term, but it's not right. That's the Wesleyan holiness Pentecostal Idea that you can reach perfection now. And they call that entire sanctification. So, with positional sanctification, we're freed from the penalty of sin. It is positional. At progressive sanctification, we're freed from the power of sin. That's why we have the mandates. That's why, up to verse 10 of this chapter, there are no commands in Romans. The first imperative verb in Romans is in verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. That is the first command. It is a mandate. And it is only then that we can realize our freedom from sin, and then it's not until phase 3 that we are freed from the presence of sin. Now, remember this chart. We'll have occasion to refer to it later on. I'll get on the overhead and draw it out in some different different concepts by way of review positional realities that we have seen in romans 6 1 through 11 are first of all that we have been identified with christ's death so that in his death we truly historically died to sin it's not experiential in the sense that we feel something or that at the moment of salvation you say oh now i realize i just don't have to sin anymore we don't know that until you read the scriptures See, baptism with the Holy Spirit, our identification with Christ, is real, it's historical, it's retroactive. In Christ's death on the cross, we die, but we don't know about it until we come to the Scriptures and read about it and study about it. second thing we learned is that we have been buried with Him. We not only died with Him, but we were buried with Him. And third, we have been resurrected with Him to new life. And the model that Paul uses is that just as he was raised to a new life with God, so we are raised uh, with a new life, a new spiritual life, so that on the basis of that, sin is no longer to be a master over us. We are free from sin. fourth thing we learned is that salvation is not the end. It's the means to an end. I pointed this out when we were in our introduction to the Old Testament, that many people think that this is the theme of the Bible, is salvation. But the theme has to express an end, not a means. And salvation is merely a means to an end. What is the end? The end is to glorify God. So, towards that end, God gives us the new basis for life, quality of life and capacity of life. And that comes only by fulfilling the mandates related to the spiritual life. Point five, this new spiritual life is ours positionally, but does not become ours in experience until we apply the spiritual life mandates and make those habitual in our lives. That means we have to change. Some people don't like change, but that's what the spiritual life is all about. Six, we're no longer enslaved, therefore, to the tyranny of the sin nature. We do have a real choice to make now, and we can choose not to to operate on the power of the sin nature. Now, unbelievers can choose whether or not to sin, but they can either sin or they can have human good, but they can't choose not to operate on the sin nature because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have an alternative power source. All they have is the sin nature. It's either sin, or personal sin or human good. But we have an option and we can live on the basis of the Holy Spirit. Now, that brings us down to... The command where we finished, wrapped up last time in verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And I pointed out that the main verb here is legizomai. It is a present middle imperative. It is a deponent verb, which means that's the O-M-A-I ending. You know, one thing, one reason I get into some details is we have a number of people who do listen to tapes who are going to seminary, and it's always helpful for those to know some of these little fine points. It may not be relevant to you, but I know there are people out there listening to some of the tapes, and these points are relevant to them. The OMAI ending, in fact, there's a, daomai is one of the words for request, and I have had three phone calls in the last year from pastors who have called me up and said, Well, I don't understand. It's a middle or passive verb. How can I translate "pray" as a passive? It's because you've got to understand that the o-m-a-i ending is a indicates as the as the dictionary form of the word indicates it's a deponent verb, which means the active form dropped out of usage. It no longer exists. So the middle passive form does double duty. It can be active in meaning or it can be middle or passive in meaning. You just have to judge from the context. So just because it is technically a passive form doesn't mean it has a passive meaning. As a deponent verb, it has an active meaning with a passive form. And it means to reckon, to calculate, to count, to take into account, to evaluate, to estimate, to think, to ponder, to deliberate, and to conclude. So all of, one thing all of those meanings have in common is that this is a function of cognition. This is not a function of emotion. And what we learn when we come to that verse is that the key issue, the central issues in the spiritual life are going to be determined by what you think and what you choose. That's the battlefield. The battlefield is between our ears the battlefield is not how we feel. The battlefield is not what Satan is doing. The battlefield is not what the world is doing. The battlefield is what we're choosing to act on between our ears. It's what we're choosing to believe, to learn, and to act upon. So the fact that you have a middle voice, I mean, a, an active imperative here, addresses the volition and the, the meaning of the word addresses cognition. And we go back and we see that this is a major emphasis in this whole section. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ? And then he explains the doctrine. And then we have a causal adverbial participle in verse 6, because we know this, that our old self was crucified with Christ. And then in verse 9, another causal adverbial participle, because we know that Christ... Having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death is no longer a master over him. And then verse 11 concludes with a mandate to know something. Knowledge. It is thinking. The Christian life is a life of thought. It is not a life of emotion. That does not mean that we do not have emotional responses to, to the truth as we learn it. Anybody who does not get somewhat excited, I didn't say ecstatic, I said excited, and somewhat emotional on one level or another, one way or another, everybody differs. When they really come to grips with the fact that God died on the cross for them, paid every penalty, and everything's done for, is a rock. God created us with emotion. Emotion is not inherently sinful. Emotion is, Jesus Christ had emotions. If there was anything wrong with emotion, then Jesus Christ could not have had any emotion in hypostatic union. But he did, there are a number of passages that indicate that. The one that comes to mind is when he wept with compassion for the masses that were there grieving for Lazarus uh, in John chapter 11. So emotion is not necessarily wrong. What becomes wrong is emotionalism when we start using our emotions as criteria for decision making, criteria for the Christian life, or where we start making that The basis for the decisions we make in life—that's the problem with emotionalism. So the verb here, "logizomai," emphasizes that we are to know something. Consider yourselves to be dead. This is not some just mental trick we play on ourselves. This is a reality. It is. There are two two different ways to illustrate this. One is, and I I saw examples of this when I went to Belarus about five years ago, which was not, but about three years after the breakup of the Soviet Union, and you see a citizen there, a citizen of that country, and they have lived their entire life under the slavery, the despotism, the tyranny of communism. And, you know, it's really sad that Americans have forgotten how tyrannical communism is, and that's one of the issues, backdrops for this whole thing with Cuba right now, is people have forgotten how horrible it is, and I'm appalled at the fact that we have forgotten how horrible it is. But these these citizens there, wonderful people that I met over there, did not have the capacity after their freedom to enjoy their freedom. There were a lot of other dynamics. I, I don't want to take away from the fact that, that the whole infrastructure was falling apart and the old KGB turned into a new mafia and there's all kinds of things going on there. But, but the average man on the street, did, because there was no doctrine, there was no Christian framework or basis for the undergirding their, their culture philosophically with absolutes. They didn't have the sole capacity to appreciate freedom and they wanted to go back. I, 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 talked, to, I talked to one school teacher and she said when, when Brezhnev was, was the head of, head of the Soviet Union, they had more than enough money. They were putting money aside for the future. They had a dacha in the country. They went on vacations. They traveled all over the Soviet Union. They just had an abundance. They had vacation. And now three families had to live together in a two bedroom flat and one family made enough money to pay for the rent. Another family made enough money to buy food. They could not buy any meat because that would take a third person's salary just to buy meat. Meat was exorbitant. The average person was making 50 to 75 dollars a month and meat usually ran about 10 to 15 dollars a pound. Beef did. So you can see you're not going to eat a lot of hamburgers on that kind of money. But they they wanted to go back under that tyranny. Now, we look at that and we say, that is absurd. Why would somebody who is free and now under a system that that is at least legally set up according to capitalism, why would somebody like that want to go back under the terrible tyranny of a dictatorship? And yet, that's Paul's analogy here in, in Romans 6 is that as a believer we were under the dictatorship the tyranny of the sin nature and we have that those bonds have been broken we are freed from it and now we're in a new position of freedom why would you go back and put yourself under the control of the sin nature this is a real change that has taken place it is not just mental gymnastics another analogy a couple gets married older couple let's say they've been single all their lives they're both in their Forties, so they've had many years of habit patterns of thinking and acting as a single person. Two days later, they still feel and act like the same person. But they can't act like a single person anymore because there has been a legal and judicial change that is signified by a ring. And what has happened in the Christian life is there has been a legal and judicial change at the point of salvation when we are identified with Christ, and the sign of that is the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. And that change is just as real. We may still feel like the old unsaved person. We still have that sin nature with all of its lust patterns and all of its inclinations and all of its trends. But there has been a real and judicial change that has taken place. And what Paul says is we need to think about it. We need to focus on it. We need to let it sit on our minds and meditate on it and think about all of its ramifications because it is in the power of the truth that our thinking changes and we begin to realize who and what we are in Christ post-salvation as opposed to who and what we were in the control of the sin nature prior to salvation. So the key to sanctification then is in the mentality, what you think, and that means you have to think about it. We can't just come to Bible class and fill up our notebooks and say, Isn't that wonderful? I understand the terminology. But to go home and to think about it, when you're driving home, think about it. Uh, when, you're, when you're alone, have the time to think what all this means, what all of the ramifications are. And then Paul is going to unpack that for us just a little more in the next three verses. Verse 12, he draws out another conclusion. Therefore, starts off with therefore, which indicates... Uh, he's going to draw another uh, uh, insight from this. Therefore, and we have a command, do not, or a prohibition, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Therefore, because you have been identified with Christ's crucifixion, because you have been identified with his burial, because you have been identified with his resurrection, and give a new life, therefore, because of that, do not let re- sin reign. Notice how all of a sudden, for five and a half chapters, there has not been a single command. And now he's just piling up one mandate after another. Think, positive command, consider yourselves dead to sin. Think about it, calculate, reckon it, deliberate it, conclude you're dead to sin. Therefore, because you're dead to sin, don't let sin reign. This is the present active imperative of prohibition from the word basiloi et. Basiloi eo which simply means to rule or to reign and indicates the uh, imperial tyranny of the sin nature over the unbeliever. But now, because it's an imperative mood, we know that that is addressed to the volition of every single individual. So now it is up to us. See, before you were saved, you never had a choice. Sin always reigned. But now that we are believers, we have a choice. Sin can dominate or not. What makes the difference? The difference is our volition. See, the sin nature is the source of temptation, but it is our volition that is the source of, of sin. That is the determination, what choice we make. Therefore, do not let sin rule or reign or dominate in your mortal body. Now, why does this emphasis on the body? We saw earlier that... In verse 6, our old self, the old man, which is, it's, it's, it is at least the sin nature. Last time I talked about that term, uh, and and traditionally I went back and looked at the Schofield note, Schofield took the old self as the sin nature, Schaeffer took the old self as the sin nature, but if the old man, that's really what it is, it's old man, it's paleos anthropos, the old man, if the old man was crucified, then body, what's the body of sin? See, that's the problem. You've got, they want to treat both words as a sin nature. The old man is every, is at least the sin nature, but it's everything we are under the dominion of the sin nature. It's not excluding the sin nature from the meaning of the word, but it's more than simply the sin nature. And it is more than just the positional death of the sin nature. Because it is that old man that is dead. And it is that dominion of the old sin nature that is dead. Old man includes all of that. That the body of sin, that is the continuing sin nature that stays in our life, that continues to plague us throughout our lives, might be done away with. That's the purpose. It is a potential. The reason that we are crucified is for the purpose of doing away with the sin nature. Now, that doesn't happen until phase three. Don't go out of here and think, okay, now I'm going to be sinlessly perfect. We'll deal with that error in a little bit. That's arrogance. And The first person that comes along and says, I haven't sinned, I always want to ask them, Well, are you proud about that? I say, oh, no, 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 no. Why did you tell me? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. It is in our physical body, the cell structure of our body, that the sin nature is housed. That's why it's called body of sin back in verse 6. It's called the flesh in many other passages. Because the sin nature, it's not immaterial. There may be an immaterial element to it, but it is basically housed in the cell structure of our body. As long as we're in this mortal body, we are going to deal with the problems of the sin nature. There is a strong physical element to temptation. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Is it going to control your body? And then, are you going to obey the lust? And when we get into the sin nature we see that the core portion of the sin nature is the lust pattern. This is the motivation, whether it's approbation lust, power lust, sex lust, chemical lust, uh, crusader lust, whatever your particular lust pattern may be, and it may shift from day to day or from moment to moment, or some of you are thinking about your kids and say, well, I think it shifts from minute to minute, but... We all have lust patterns, and everybody's different. And don't go judging somebody else just because their lust pattern is less socially acceptable than your lust pattern. We have area of strength produces human good, and area of weakness produces personal sin, but that lust pattern drives us towards trends. Depending on your lust pattern, you're going to trend in either the direction of asceticism and legalism, which will lead to moral degeneracy, or you'll trend towards licentiousness and end up in immoral degeneracy. But the lust pattern is what drives, and what Paul says is that you can break it at its core, and you don't have to uh, obey those lusts. You can say no, and the power there is the Holy Spirit, but we won't get there till chapter 8. And then in verse 13, we come upon a very interesting phrase. Verse 13, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. Now, this is one of those interesting phrases that has a lot of confusion to it and a lot of different historical aspects to it. And I want to take some time both to educate you on historically and on some of the issues here, and maybe drive out some confusion that has existed because of the old King James translation of this. It starts off with a, you have two imperative verbs in this verse. And they both are translated in the New American Standard as present. The old King James translated it yield. And all the books that are written on how to yield and the importance of yieldedness and everything else. We're going to look at that in a minute. But let's do our exegesis first to understand what the passage says before we take a little historical detour. It starts off with a Imperative of prohibition. It is a present active imperative of the the verb par It's a compound verb. Looks like this in the Greek. Par P-A-R. This is really para, which is to come alongside or be next to, which is a a preposition, plus the verb histame. And it has a wide variety of meanings. It means to place beside, to stand. Histamine can mean to stand, to take your stand, hold your ground, power alongside. So it means to place beside, to put at someone's disposal, to stand, to provide, to place, to bring, to offer, and to approach. So you see the word has a wide variety of meanings. And one of many is the concept, uses the word to yield. And this was the word that was used in the old King James. So let's stop a minute and talk about this word yield. Because it like carnal and holy, a couple of other words that have roots and in, in godliness, that's another one. These words have roots that go back into old English and they have become part of the of mainstream Christian evangelical vocabulary. People talk about it all the time. But what does it mean? What does it mean to yield? I and mean, I do that when I come to a yellow triangle sign on the road and somebody's coming from the other direction and I let them have the right of way. Is that what I'm supposed to do to God? Let him have the right of way? Well, it's sort of that idea. We're supposed to let God have control, but yield doesn't really communicate that too well in a modern, modern setting. So, let's stop a minute and see what yield means. According to the dictionary, according to the American Heritage Dictionary, yield means to give forth by or as if by a natural process, especially by cultivation. So, that would be applying it agriculturally, the yield of a crop, how much is produced. Well, that doesn't fit the scenario here. Uh, to furnish as return for effort or investment. How much yield did you get off of your stock return? In other words, what was your dividend or, or investment return or, or um, interest rate? That doesn't fit either. Second meaning, mean it, it has the idea of to give over possession of as in deference or defeat to surrender. Well, there is an element of that that's true here. We are The appeal is that we are to give up our will and place it under subjection to God's will. That's really the idea, to clarify it. Uh, sometimes a dictionary definition isn't precise enough. But that's really the idea the old King James. The idea of yield was submit to the authority of God to give up your will and, and replace it with God's will. Uh, that goes to the second aspect of that second meaning, to give up to another, or to concede. So that's what yield means. Now this word has a, uh, an interesting concept behind it, and the word paristeme is used a number of other places in the New Testament and that are crucial for understanding the spiritual life. For example, in Romans 12.1, Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present, there's your word, paristeme, present your bodies, A living and holy sacrifice. That's the concept of paristhemed, is to offer something to someone for their use. And it is a term that, in this sense, is is part of our worship. We are presenting our lives to God. We are no longer going to follow our will, our dictates, which would be from the sin nature, but we are going to replace. See, Romans 12.2 goes into the idea of being transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are going to replace our thinking with God's thinking, our priorities with His priorities, our plans with His plans, and our purposes with His purposes, so that we can serve Him and demonstrate that His will is good, perfect, and acceptable. So there we have the command that we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Colossians 1.22 Yet He, that is Jesus Christ, has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, in order to, there's your purpose clause, the purpose the, for the cross was not merely salvation, but to present us before him holy. Now that is a key word, hagias, it's one of our key words for sanctification, which is the noun form hagiasmas. To present you before him holy, that is the goal of sanctification, that is God's goal for your life and my life, is to present us before God holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. So that's the idea of of paristemi, to present or to place before, to offer to God. Colossians 1.28, And we proclaim him, Paul said, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete, teleos, mature in Christ. We are. That is the goal of the pastoral ministry: is to present every believer mature in Christ. That covers sanctification themes. So that is deals with the whole idea of offering ourselves under the authority of God, as opposed to our own authority. And then we find the same word. I thought this was interesting. It's found again in one of our favorite verses, Second 2 Timothy two fifteen which in the New American Standard is translated a little differently than what we're used to hearing it in, King, in uh, the King James. Be diligent, that is to study, to show yourself. See, that's how it's translated in the old King James, to show yourself. But to present yourself, paristamy, approved to God. That is part of our presentation to God. And it is diligence, because the word there is spadazo, and that means to be diligent in the realm of study in the context so that we can present ourselves to God accurately handling the word of truth. Now, that is the meaning of the word to present, par istemi, to present ourselves to God. Now, let's have a little excursus here, run down a historical rabbit trail and give you some perspective. Now, last week when I started off, I walked down memory trail and, I told you a little bit about my experiences with confusion over sanctification when I first started at seminary. Well, now we're going to put that in a little broader context tonight and understand what goes on in the world. See, sanctification is really fuzzy for a lot of people. You go to a lot of churches, you talk to a lot of pastors even, you say, what is the spiritual life all about? And you can go down to a Christian bookstore, fortunately we don't have one around here, Has a lot of garbage in it. You'll find a hundred and one different ways, different approaches to the spiritual life, and, and just about that many different definitions of the spiritual life. And so I want to address it historically and say, how did we get here? Well, you had the early church. Let's draw a little flow chart here. You start off with the early church, and in the early church, they were not really concerned with figuring out the spiritual life. In fact, if you read their writings, they're rather legalistic because they don't have a clear understanding of a lot of things yet. It's amazing how rapidly the early Christians lost the clarity of doctrine once the apostles passed from the scene. I mean, within five or ten years, they're in legalism. Now, they have all the information... And they quote Scripture a lot, but it's a very naive or untested or unthought-out expression. They believe Jesus is God. They believe in salvation by grace, but they're not defining anything. And the early church really focuses on on what we've studied some on Sunday morning. Who was Jesus before He came, which is His eternal deity? What was Jesus when He came, which is the hypostatic union? And then what did Jesus do for us when He came, which is the atonement? And that really took them about five or six centuries To work that out. Now, in the meantime, they're getting all kinds of influences from false religions, and what comes in is a work system based on the sacraments. So, spirituality becomes equated with morality. And this is what dominates throughout the Middle Ages in Roman Catholic theology. Then along about October 31st 1517 when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door of the church of Wittenberg you had the Protestant Reformation. Now the Protestant Reformation took the church back to a concept of salvation by grace. But they and it also took the church it took it back to two important things, salvation by by faith through by grace through faith. and a literal interpretation of the Scriptures. But it still takes time to work out your implications. When you have people who are being martyred for justification by faith alone, and the flower of your seminaries are being burned at the stake within ten years of graduation, then you're not getting a lot of theological development. In other words, they're fighting furiously to stay alive on one issue, and that's justification by faith. And it takes a while before they work out the implications of a literal hermeneutic into the different categories of, of doctrine. In fact, it takes about four or five hundred years. They start off in salvation, and then they, it's about a hundred years before they get to eschatology and start shifting away from amillennialism to, to premillennialism. And they're working it out in all kinds of different areas. But the Protestant Reformation failed when it comes to the spiritual life because they kept the same thing. Spirituality was by morality and an emphasis was on the law. See, there was still, underlying this, there is no distinction between the church and Israel. And they're thinking, just as in Roman Catholic. Now, you can go back, and I've read some excellent excellent uh, academic works developing how a distinction between Israel and the church was very present in the early church thinking. They understood that. They didn't work out its implications, but they understood it. It's there in the early church fathers. And they knew there was a distinction between Israel and the church. But in the Middle Ages, that was lost in amillennial theology so that the church becomes the new Israel. And Israel was the church in the Old Testament. And there is no emphasis on the Holy Spirit back in the Middle Ages. And even in Reformed theology, see your two major branches are Lutheranism and your Calvinistic branches, which are called Reformed theology. Congregationalism, Presbyterianism, it affected Anglicanism. And all that's called Reformed theology. So we'll put an R there for Reformed theology. And Reformed theology and Lutheranism all hold to what is called a replacement theology. The church replaces Israel. The church is the new Israel. Now, that's not that, that term is never applied to the church anywhere in the New Testament, but that's another story, and we'll get into that in a future study. But they fail to make that distinction, so therefore what they see as the primary sanctifying element in Israel must be the sanctifying element in the church. And what is that? The key sanctifying element in Israel was the law. And so they bring the law over, they drop the ceremonial, the sacrifices, all that, saying that was clearly fulfilled at the cross, so we'll drop that. But their principle is, if it's not abrogated, it continues. See, as dispensationalists, we say, if it's not restated it was abrogated. There's a difference. See, they say if it's not specifically abrogated, it continues. And we would say unless it's restated, it was done away with. So, now you're in a situation, and this takes us down through the 1600s, 1700s, into the 1800s. And, of course, spirituality on morality really doesn't work. So, there's all kinds of problems, ebbs and flows in the strengths of the church. And you get a couple of guys who who are real concerned about holiness. They're real concerned about moral purity. And they're going to Oxford and they all get together and they have a little club called the Holy Club. You know, um, John, Chuck, and George. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield, And a couple of other men. Now, none of them are saved at that point. And eventually, they all did become saved. And Wesley ends up heading up the movement, even though Whitfield is the one with the better theology. And Wesley comes along, and he sort of introduces Lutheran, Lutheran, and Reform view are going to still emphasize morality and law. Now Wesley doesn't get away from that, and he doesn't get away from the distinction of Israel and the church. But he is going to bring in. A new element. And that is called perfection. Christian perfection. Now, to give Wesley due credit, Wesley did not believe that you really became sinless. He just thought you got to a point where you were you were pretty good and you didn't yield to, to known sins anymore. Uh, but he didn't really think you'd become sinless. His followers, though, took it that far, that you could become sinless. And by the middle of the 19th century, and this is really where everything starts to just fragment into a multitude of directions. The middle of the 19th century, one of Wesley's uh, followers by the name of Phoebe Palmer, who's a Bible teacher, married to a physician down in Manhattan, teaching the Bible, starts teaching that, that what you get at the cross is salvation blessing, but you have to have a second work of grace, that elevates you for sanctification blessing. And now you have two steps. Now you have two steps. And this is a foundational shift in thinking. The 19th century is the seedbed for all the 20th century's problems in all kinds of ways. But theologically, this is one of them. Now, there are three groups that are heavily influenced from this. The first group is a crowd that's called... Holiness churches. This is like the, a Nazarene church. I don't know if you've got Nazarene churches up here or not. But Nazarene churches, they're, they're holiness. They don't speak in tongues. They're holiness. They, they have a two step view of the Christian life. You can lose your salvation. They're, they're definitely Armenian in that way. Then you had another group that came out of this that came out of some Bible conferences in England that originally met at Keswick in, in England. So they, they became known by that name, the Keswick movement. And then you have the Pentecostal crowd. that doesn't come along till the turn of the century. Now, what is unique about these groups is they're all putting an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Dispensationalists come along too at the same time, but they're not—they're not two-steppers. I'm not talking about dancing country western dancing. They have, they all emphasized the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go back and you look at Reformed theology, there's no emphasis on the Holy Spirit. The two greatest works, talk to any trained theologian who's been to seminary and has an education worth the paper and his degrees written on, and he'll tell you that the two greatest classical works in church history on the Holy Spirit are John Owen's work on the Holy Spirit. John Owen's was the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell. He was the great Puritan theologian. And Abraham Kuyper's work on the Holy Spirit written at the end of the 19th century. And Abraham Kuyper was a brilliant man. He also, at the same time, he was one of the foremost Dutch Reformed theologians. He was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, and he had many other accomplishments to his name. But if you read those, and I've had to read all of them, both of them from cover to cover, uh, they don't mention two things. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, you scratch your head and you say, well, how can they write a book about the Holy Spirit and not mention the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit? Because they're making the same mistake that you know, the Pentecostal holiness crowd makes and that is that they tend to take these terms synonymously. But it's more, it's more dangerous than that in reform thinking because they don't see a distinction between Israel and the church so nothing that significant happens at Pentecost. See, it's at Pentecost that the Holy Spirit comes down It's at Pentecost is the first time you have baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And it's at Pentecost the first time you have believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it's at Pentecost the first time believers are filled with the Spirit. But there's no framework for that in their theology. It's not there because it is replacement theology and the church is the new Israel. So this is the benefit of the Holiness Keswick and Pentecostal crowd and as dispensationalism as well because dispensationalism came along but with, with Darby starting in the 1830s, and Darby sees a distinction between the church and Israel, and that distinction is going to be partly based on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in terms of his baptismal work, baptism work and the filling of God the Holy Spirit and his indwelling, and seeing a distinction between those three ministries. Now, what, one thing you're learning from all this is a question that all of you have probably asked at one time or another, What is a Bible church and where did we come from? Well, I'm giving you our pedigree. This is where we come from. We've been influenced by all of these ideas because they all came together with the exception of Pentecostalism. Holiness theology and Keswick theology often cross fertilize their theological ideas. And a lot of these teachers, like Ruben A. Torrey, who was president of Moody, in fact, Dwight Moody himself, uh, and others at that time, bought into some of the holiness ideas. They had some elements. because, See, you'd have a mild form of this two-step, and to get to that second step, you had to yield, brother. Yield. And this emphasis on yieldedness. Or you had to present yourself a, a sacrifice. But there's this one-shot dedication thing that has to take place. And the way this would be charted out is at the cross you get salvation and on the on the good side of this they would say you get everything at the cross but at some point after salvation you reach a point where you're going to make a one-shot decision for 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 christ call it dedication yieldedness whatever and that's going to kind of bump you up into a higher level you may go up and down but once you make that one-shot deal decision then you're going to go in the Christian life. And a lot of folks have been taught that over the years. Some of you may have been taught that. I know I heard elements of that when I was growing up from different places here or there. And it just sort of adds to the confusion. And you just wonder, well, how do you put all this together and where does it come from? And I'm trying to address that a little bit before we run completely out of time. Well, in the context of the late 19th century, you had some uh, that was really the birth I think the the renaissance of Bible teaching in in American church history because what's happening is the bad guys are beginning to control the major seminaries the bad guys being the liberals who've gone over to Germany to get their PhDs and they've brought back 19th century German rationalism empirical uh, liberalism and so they don't believe in anything anymore no uh, virgin birth, no atonement no miracles and the Conservatives react and one of the things they had was a lot of Bible conferences. Moody had a series of conferences right up here in Massachusetts called the North at Northfield Mass and they were called the Northfield Bible Conferences. There was another series of conferences that were called the Niagara Conferences because they started over by Niagara Falls, but some years they met down in New York a church in Manhattan and other times they met in Northfield and other times in other places. But some of the key speakers were Arnold C. Gabeline, who was a say Jew, who founded, uh, I think he was one of, I may be mistaken. I think he founded American Board of Missions to the Jews, but I might be wrong. I know he founded a Jewish missionary organization. He was a committed early, committed dispensationalist. Cyrus Ingerson Schofield, C.I. Schofield, who did the Schofield Reference Bible, which is considered to be the most important book for dispensational teaching and Scofield was a lawyer and he was a decorated civil war uh southern uh veteran and uh he ended up in uh in St. Louis muddy drunk in the streets and somebody got the gospel to him and he was saved and he was taught uh dispensational truth by uh, one of the pastors there called James Hall Brooks in St. Louis and um, then a little while later while they were te- while he was teaching in Northfield Along came a musician, a, music, a, mu- a musical evangelist, who uh, liked to lead the crowds in singing. But Scofield looked at this young whippersnapper and thought he had a lot of potential, and took him under his wing and started teaching him theology. That young musical evangelist' name was was uh, Lewis Sperry Chafer. And Chafer became, he did away with his, evan, his musical evangelism and got caught up in teaching the Word and, and became an excellent student of the Gospel. But he never knew the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. I'm not sure if Scofield did. I need to check on that. But I know that Chafer did not. And so this generates some problems. Now, in this matrix of events that's taken place a hundred plus years ago, you've got Keswick, some of these Keswick guys are coming over and speaking in Northfield and Niagara and Schofield and Chafer speaking at their things, and so there's this this kind of this this seed bed, as it were, of of doctrines that's that's developing, a new approach to the spiritual life. Now Chafer really did the best job coming out of that, and I want to get see, let you read a quote. This shows you the problem that we have, and this is one reason why Warfield, who was the head of the theology department, one of the great theologians. We wouldn't agree with him on many things, but he's a great theologian nevertheless, at Princeton. Really nailed Schaefer in his book review of Schaeffer's book, He That Is Spiritual, because he thought Schaefer was Keswick. Because Schaefer picked up their terminology. That's why sometimes I spend so much time talking about words and their meaning is they're important. And you listen to what Schaefer says here. A yieldedness. To the will of God is not demonstrated by some one particular issue. It is rather a matter of having taken the will of God as the rule of one's life. Now, that's true. To be in the will of God is simply to be willing to do His will without reference to any particular thing He may choose. It is electing His will to be final, even before we know what He may wish us to do. It is therefore not a question of being willing to do some one thing. It is a question of being willing to do anything, when, where, and how it may seem best in His heart of love. It is taking the normal and natural position of childlike trust, which has already consented to the wish of the Father, even before anything of the outworking of his wish is revealed, which is an excellent statement, and explanation of what it means to yield. Now, Schaefer founded Dallas Seminary. The three of the best teachers at Dallas in terms of spiritual life were Walford, John Walvoord, who is now the Chancellor. He just celebrated his 90th birth, no, May 1st. He will have his ninetieth birthday. Um, Dwight Pentecost and Charles Ryrie. Now Ryrie's really I think Ryrie's really screwy on his view of the spiritual life, frankly, and I'm not going to bring that up. But Pentecost has some I mean, I want to show you where this fuzziness comes from. Pentecost says the words that ye present, talking about Romans twelve two, that you present your life a living sacrifice. Refer to the act by which the child of God acknowledges God's right to do with him what he wills. This is the act in which one disclaims ownership of himself, discounts all rights to himself, and acknowledges God's ownership and God's right to him as a person. Notice how he's treating it as a one-time event. It is therefore not a question of being willing to do some one thing, it is a question of being willing to do anything when, where, and how it may seem best. Well, that's almost directly out of Chafer. And he he picks that up as well. And he's right, I mean, these guys are right down the line with Chafer. And then he goes on to say, in this quote, the tense here is very interesting in the original text. For Paul is literally saying, stop submitting or presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. That's our passage in Romans 5.12. He recognizes that that is exactly what people had been doing, and he calls upon them to stop. We sometimes refer to this as consecration Sometimes is dedication, but it refers to that moment of time when the blood-bought child of God renounces his right to himself, his own way, his own desires, his own strength, his own intellect and mind. Now, what's he saying? He's basically saying what I just diagrammed there, is that there's this point in time that you reach and it's caused because they misconstrued the meaning of the grammar. That's why I say grammar is important you screw up on the grammar, you screw up on interpretation, and you screw up on application. Now, he goes on to say Paul recognizes that when the child of God makes this once and for all decision. See, up until about 30 years ago, everybody taught that an aorist tense was a once and for all action. I don't know if you ever heard that, but I heard it a lot. Once for all doesn't mean that at all. And so when it says when you have a command here to present your bodies and that's an heiress tense. It means it's a one, they would interpret that, that's a one-time, one-time event, one time, one time event, once for all decision. And boy, has that screwed up a lot of people in the spiritual life because they get to a point and they come walk the aisle and they dedicate themselves to Christ and they yield. And then the next day they've got the same problems they had all along. Well, how do you get past it? Let's go on and read, read the rest of what he said here. Life then consists, see, they would recognize that too that uh, Paul recognizes that when the child of God makes this once and for all decision to present himself as a living sacrifice, life then consists of a multitude of individual steps to be taken one at a time, and God is the one who is guiding each individual step. It is the responsibility of the child of God to submit, not only once and for all to the will of God, but to keep on submitting to daily manifestation of the will of God as they are made known. Now, the second half is right. That is really the thrust of the Aarist tense verb. Now Ryrie, I mean Walverd says it's necessary to be yielded to the will of God to have the full blessings of His ministry. The life of yieldedness has several aspects. So you see this emphasis on yielding. But what does yielding mean? It involves for Walverd the initial act of surrender. See, there you go right back to this concept that there is just this one-shot decision. And then you will be on almost a higher plane. Let me just go on here. There was a, um, see if there's anything. The continued life of yieldedness, it is a matter of experience. This is the second aspect here. The first aspect is the one shot decision. The second aspect for Walbert is a continued life of yieldedness. It's a matter of experience as well as revelation that the issues of yieldedness are not settled by the initial act. So they recognize that. That's the good form. The bad form was that it was settled by yieldedness. And if you come out of a church with holiness leanings, and some Baptist churches are heavily influenced by holiness, thinking you were really hit with that. Walk the aisle all the time. And that will be the key to living the Christian life. So that gives you a framework for why this is a loaded word. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And here to... Do not go on presenting, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And I think the thrust here, to bring it into our vernacular, is the idea of submitting to the authority of someone. Do not go on submitting, to, do not go on submitting to the authority of the sin nature by presenting your body as instruments of unrighteousness. But, submit yourselves to God, to God's authority, as those alive from the dead. See, this goes back to his argument. We are alive from the dead. We have been crucified with Christ. Now, the difference is that the present tense, the present tense prohibition indicates stop doing something you're doing. The aorist tense makes it as emphasizes the fact that this is the beginning of an action, it emphasizes the importance and urgency of the action, but it is not making it a one-shot decision. It's not a once-for-all decision. The heiress just takes all the aspects of something, pulls it together, and treats it as one thing. It doesn't emphasize whether it's once-for-all or anything like that. That has nothing to do with the heiress tense. It's just either emphasizing the inception of the act, or the urgency of the act, or both. And I think it's both here. It's an urgent, because this is a priority in the Christian life. You're not going to get anywhere, and you need to start doing it if you haven't been doing it, and that's the context here with the Romans. You need to start submitting yourself to the authority of God as those alive from the dead, because you are alive from the dead. And your members, that is your body, your mind, every part of your being, as instruments of righteousness to God. Why? Verse 14, 4, Sin shall not be master over you. The tyranny has been broken, for you are not under law. That's why I went back and traced the breakdown in church history. When you had that original breakdown, failure to understand the distinction between Israel and the church, all you're left with is spirituality by morality. And anything an unbeliever can do is not the spiritual life. The spiritual life is uniquely the product of God the Holy Spirit walking by means of the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit as seen in Galatians chapter 5. So the principle is that we are not under law, we're under grace. Christ has done it all. Live in the light of this reality. And then he moves on to the next side of the argument in verse 15 and we'll hit that next time with our heads bowed. Father, we thank you that you have done everything for us, not only for salvation, but that salvation has provided everything we need for the spiritual life. It's based on the fact that we are positionally, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, the power of the sin nature is broken so that we can truly go forward without being under the dominion and tyranny of the sin nature. We pray that we would be challenged by these things and we would find the time to think, reflect, Let our mentality be washed by Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.